Hello, everyone. For this episode, we did have some minor technical difficulties. So the audio quality is unfortunately not quite as crisp as I normally like the episodes to be. Um, but it was still a fantastic discussion with Jared that unfortunately I missed out on because I was unwell on the day of recording. And I'm really, really sad because it sounded like they had a lot of fun with it. But I hope you all enjoy it and have a wonderful day. Hello and welcome to another episode of Curiosity Killed the Rat, science podcast here where we like to make science fun and accessible for anyone and everyone. If you have a science degree, great. If you don't, great. If you just want to learn some cool science, great. We're here. We got you, B. We got you back. Um, I'm Kate. I'm a scientist, neuroscientist, the regular scientist of this show. Um, and I am, as always, recording from lands traditionally owned by the Wurundjeri people, as is our guest for today. Um, and normally I am joined by my wonderful, lovely, dashing co-host, Matt. But unfortunately, he's ditched us. He's bailed today and I'm on my own. Um, it's not his fault. He is unwell. You know, we wish him well. But alas... Luckily, luckily, I do have an awesome guest here to keep me company today. So you are not just listening to my voice for an hour because that would be that would be a lot. I wouldn't want to listen to that show. Um, so I'm joined by Jared. Hey, Jared, how's it going? Hey, good. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Oh, super stoked to have you here. Um, so Jared is a reproductive biologist and science communicator and... I mean, I, to be quite honest, I'm not 100% sure what exactly you're going to be teaching us about today. And I'm really excited to find out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can talk about quite a few things. I mean, reproduction, it's got some pretty obvious themes and it's kind of got some less obvious themes. So yeah. And uh, sort of touch on a little bit of everything, really. Yeah. Well, where do you want to start? Let's dive in. I'm, I'm, I'm keen for this. This is going to be a fun <laughs> episode and Matt's going to be sad that he missed it. I mean, he'll listen to it, you know. As he's yeah. editing it together, still doing all the work behind the scenes. Of course, of course. Well, I mean, my own, um, my PhD was in, um, so yeah, reproductive biology. Yep. And specifically, I looked at um, kind of assisted reproduction, which people might um, sort of question what that is. And it's essentially a whole sweep of different techniques. Everyone sort of has heard of IVF. Yeah, um, yeah. So there's a whole bunch more like, you know, artificial insemination. And then there's, you know, freezing sperm and eggs. And then there's, uh, I mean, that's only like three. There's, mm. there's probably like 20 of them. So there's plenty to go around. Oh, wow. Um, so I toyed around with a couple of those. Mm -hmm. And I also looked at um, sort of early stages of pregnancy in this uh, it's a really cool little mouse called the spiny mouse. Oh, yeah. It's you said to look up a picture of that, and I did, and it's adorable. <laughs> so, like, it everybody adorable. listening, please just look up a picture. They've yes. got, like, giant ears, and they're giant just, like... Ears, oh. adorable little face, Egyptian spiny mouse. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're super, super cool little things. Also super... It's pretty much a love-hate relationship, you know, with um, things that you do during your PhD. You mm -hmm. learn a lot, but it's also a lot of failures and struggles. <laughs> Some of that's my fault. Some of that's the mouse's fault. I'll put that some of that on them. Um, so <laughs> yeah, the fun mouse. of animal research, hey? <laughs> yeah, that's that. That's what it is. That's the life. Um, so spiny mice are like really unusual uh, in terms of actual mice. Why are they called um, spiny mice? Do they have spines? They actually do. <gasps> yeah, it's one of those simple answers. Okay. <laughs> um, like down their really back like a dinosaur or like what, what are we? It looks like, like hedgehoggy, kind of like oh, yeah. and sharp little spines all the way down its back. And then oh, my gosh. Fluffy, fluffy white belly. Yeah, again, seriously cute. Freaking adorable. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're uh, one of well, the only rodent that we know of anyway. Um, that has a menstrual cycle. So mm, every right. other rodent has an estrus cycle. Yeah. Um, and it's actually less than 2% of all mammals in the world have a menstrual cycle. So really? a lot of people thought it would be more common than that, but it is definitely very rare. Yeah. So yeah. for people listening that don't really know like what an estrus cycle is versus a menstrual cycle, like what what's the yeah. difference? What like? For sure. So yeah, the estrus cycle is the more common one. And that's what... Um, if you think of um, when animals sort of come into heat, like yeah. they'll be sort of receptive to mating and they'll ovulate at a specific time of 
um, of the year or the season, you know, depending on the animals like um, lemurs, for example, mm-hmm. they would only ovulate once in a year because there's like one right. breeding season. Yeah. You know, it's sort of um, optimal time for breeding. And then a couple of months later, the you know, the babies will be born in the right season. So animals with an estrus cycle are sort of affected by all of those external things like mm-hmm. sunlight and food and access to water and nutrition and that can sort of dictate when they will ovulate and when mm-hmm. they'll mate as well. So um, that doesn't really happen for um, species with a menstrual cycle. I mean, in saying that, mm. you know, if you're undernourished, sort of if you're um, yeah, undernourished or if you're very overweight, that can mm-hmm. still affect like your cycle. But a lot of elite athletes you know, yeah. will have issues with their menstrual cycle. Yeah. And yeah. And that, that's the example. Uh, that's the perfect example. I mean, it can affect us, but it's nowhere near the degree um, yeah. influence sort of that, you know, the sun, you know, sunlight doesn't affect us. We can breed all year. It doesn't really matter. You're going to ovulate in the middle of your cycle every time pretty <laughs> yeah. much. Yeah. Um, that's not the case for Easter cycles. So yeah, they're, a little, okay. um, they're a little bit um, predictable in terms of seasons um, and then also, uh, they don't get periods, right? So they don't mm. have that, that terrible time of the that month. really fun time of the month. Where that you really just, fun time yeah. of the month that everybody loves. Yep. That's but the one. They don't get all that. All my fellow uterus owners out there will know the pain. Yeah, exactly. Shaking in fear and yep. uh, PTSD. Love it. Um, so fun. And yeah, so this, this mouse has, has all of that. And so they, they have a menstrual cycle. They breed all year. They have like a, a period after about seven days of cycling and then they'll mm-hmm. bleed for like a couple of days and then they'll be back uh, ready to go again. So yeah, wow. Super weird. Yeah. That's, that is so strange to imagine a mouse getting its period. Like A little, yeah, a little mouse. And it's even weird to think on why it would have one as well because, I mean, yeah. pretty much everything eats mice as well. You know, they're yeah. everybody. That's so, true. They're kind of leaving like a little trail of where they are, and yeah, so, yeah, like what could possibly be the evolutionary sort of yeah, and, mechanism and, behind that. And people are trying to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Watch this space. Why did we evolve mm. to have one? You know, why did this mouse evolve to have one? Is it the mm. same reason that? that yeah, you know, might be a different reason altogether. That's you know, true. Um, That's true because that happens. There's a couple a lot. of theories out there, but it's yeah tricky to kind of hone in on and definitively say, yep, it was because of this. Yeah. Gosh. Um, but either way, I mean, we've got a mouse that uh, that has a menstrual cycle, so that's pretty uh, pretty damn helpful. For- yeah. I was going to say, is this now going to be the leading sort of species used in like animal models of human menstrual duck? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what we're, uh, we're arguing for. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the reason normal mice are, you know, so widely used in research is because they're small and easy. Mm. And, um, you can do a lot of cool stuff that with happens them. In, most of the things that happens in humans happens in mice and it just happens sort of quicker. Mm. So you can see things a lot quicker and um, we know a lot about mice, but they don't have a menstrual cycle. So that's something we really couldn't mm. really use for, like, reliably, I, I should say. Mm. Um, mm. Other than that, you know, you've got to go to stuff like gorillas and chimps and, and baboons and... That's mm, uh, doing research you know, you on those is less feasible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not just in terms of like their size, and you know, a baboon is is fairly aggressive and uh, probably pretty mm. hard to handle, and all of those things. So, um, on top of that, you know, expensive and hard to keep. There's a whole, you know, a massive amount of like ethics and moral dilemmas working with them compared yeah. to mice because they're so much more developed and all these things. So. Um, it's partly the reason why we don't really know a, a lot or enough about, you know, menstrual disorders and gynecology and that sort of thing. So we're hoping that this mouse is going to be yeah. the saviour, right? So how how long have we known about this mouse? Like, well, not so much known that it, like, known that it has a menstrual cycle. Like, how long have we known that there's, there is a rodent that mm. has this? So it was discovered only five years ago. So oh, wow! And how, like, how exactly did you discover this sort of thing? Like, how does this? How do how do people stumble upon this? Like, yeah. So, um, so the lady that discovered it is um, was one of my supervisors for my PhD, Dr. Nadia oh, wow. Belafure. Yeah. And um, she discovered it trying to essentially what you can do with some mice is you can get them pseudo pregnant, so you can trick the body into thinking that it's pregnant. 
Okay. And then it will yep. show signs of pregnancy and the hormones and all of those things will change. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that way you can sort of study kind of early pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, you can't do that in menstrual species. It doesn't work. So mm. that sort of circuitry doesn't, um, doesn't happen in menstrual species. So she tried to do that um, in spiny mice, wasn't really happening. And um, one of the techniques that we use is we, sounds pretty gruesome, but it's we do a, a lavage of the vagina. So we flush it with mm-hmm. fluid and then take out that fluid and then look at it under the microscope, what cells are there. Yeah. Um, and she found a whole bunch of blood. Oh, so yeah, okay. First, first, you know, uh, was obviously going to be shock and like, oh my God, have I hurt this mouse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have I cut it or something? Have like I cut it, you know, all these things, right? So, um, you know, she called her supervisor in and her supervisor and everyone mm-hmm. came and had a look and did the um, lavage themselves, get the same thing. And yeah. they were just sort of like, holy. I think yeah, we just, uh, wow. <laughs> we just found it. So one of those accidental discoveries. Yeah. Well, so do you reckon that there there might be more out there that we just haven't discovered yet? Exactly. There could be, right? I mean... Because, like, how often are you uh, doing this to animals and making, like, checking whether there's traces of blood or not? That's the thing. You know, it could have been... could have happened before and some people just sort of, you know, didn't read into it or Mm. um, thought it was nothing. And then, really, they could have discovered something really cool like this. Yeah. but yeah, you know, spiny mice are only kind of new to the lab as well. So yeah, um, mice have been around for like hundreds of years, really, mm-hmm. for years and years. So definitely not normal mice, but maybe there's some other species of mice or, or rat or something out there that that do it as mm. well. We haven't found it yet, but we've yeah. got one. One's yeah. A- well, that which just opens up the you know the the possibility and the chance that there could be more. That's exactly, and so crazy. The, the, the research is slowly sort of coming out more and more and more about their biology, and you know, there's a lot of um, one of the studies I think it came out last year or maybe the year before um, was that a behavioural study of the mice as well, and whether or not they get PMS. And the answer is, uh, yeah, they get like PMS-like sort of behavioral. So what does that look like in a mouse? (laughs) Like, Well, uh, they ate more, so mm -hmm. they consumed more food. Um, They were difficult to handle, so they were more sort of agitated Mm -hmm. uh, more often than normal. You're nodding nodding a lot here. Well, mice are pretty pretty feisty to begin with or can be, so so, especially the female ones. Yeah, spiny mice are generally pretty pretty easy to handle. Oh, really? Yeah, really okay. Lucky for, lucky for us, anyway. So it was quite a clear difference. Yeah, they were, they were not happy, mm-hmm. um, and they were isolating themselves quite a bit as well, like sort of mm. sitting back in the corner of their um, either their cages or when we did behavioural studies in like these big sort mm-hmm. of environments, they're all sort of sitting in the corner, a little huddled, looking a little bit anxious and scared and. Um, so yeah, a couple of other things and yeah, they've got PMS like sort of behavior, I mm. guess as well, which is even more fascinating, right? They've just- yeah, yeah, definitely. And do we, do we see like PMS like behavior in some of those other animals like baboons and whatever that, um, um, yes, you sort of mm-hmm. do. Um, and again, that's, those things are like harder to study in those animals. Mm. So mm. baboons are naturally just, you know, pretty feisty, aggressive animals. Yeah. Um, so behavioral studies are kind of few and far between, but yeah, I think we do sort of see those symptoms in them as well. So interesting. it's kind of across the board, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. I don't, yeah. I, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember like the details or, you know, enough about the, the neuroscience of um, PMS and like how that is like how the, yeah, the different hormone levels are meant to change that, you know, your mood, et cetera. Um, but it makes sense, right? That, yeah, I guess that you're, you're going to see it in the mice if it's, if they're experiencing the same. Yeah. And that's, you know. and that's the same the thing as well. We see those hormone changes that are, you know, reflect pretty much exactly what's happening in people and baboons mm. and, and all of them. So it makes sense. You know, you've got the hormones and the behavior, mm. you know, we've got point A and point B and they're pretty well connected now. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. Science is. coming to life. I mean, it's always cool to discover things or the element of this that's new and exciting is the fact that like 
it's a mouse that has a menstrual cycle. But then, mm-hmm. you know, having that element of it, it does fit in with a lot of the existing theory as well. Like it hasn't just thrown a spanner in the works of everything we thought yeah. we knew. Like, you yeah. know, it actually sort of continues to show that what we seem to know about this stuff in humans, despite having a good rodent model um, yeah. or whatever, or sorry, despite not having a good rodent model up until now, um, you know, the fact that these things are consistent when we do, yeah, exactly. when and we do so find this essentially, model. Essentially now we're trying to find out more, just, you know, more and more and more and more and more about it. And, yeah. Um, so there are a couple of other sort of non-primates with, um, it's like mm-hmm. inverted commas, a menstrual cycle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're sort of less human-like. So the spiny mouse one is human-like. Okay. That it, it happens all year and it's just constant basically, right? And mm-hmm. like there's um, four species of bat that also have, that also menstruate, mm-hmm. but it's kind of um, inconsistent and it doesn't really happen all year round and it's kind of isolated. Yeah, the, Okay. In the well, one isolated in the year and isolated also um, in the actual uterus itself. So it might not shed the entire lining, for example. It might just right. shed like a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like a menstrual cycle, but it's not like but a. But it's a different one. one. Yeah. Yeah. So whereas the spiny mouse one is very, very, much yeah. yeah. Gosh. So yeah, my sort of PhD looked into sort of a little bit more into that and now um yeah going into sort of early pregnancy and what that looks like how many sort of places around the world are these mice being looked at now that you know we've kind of discovered that they can be useful for looking at this sort of thing well we've got the only one in the southern hemisphere yeah okay um and the other ones i believe are in um kentucky in the u.s somewhere Mm -hmm. and i think in the netherlands as well um so I think in the other labs, they're actually not looking at the reproductive stuff as much because okay, yeah. spinies are also really unique in um, a couple of other things and that they don't form any scars, like so they don't form oh, scar wow. tissue. So if you sort of tear their skin, for example, or if you just yeah. them, there'll be no scar. It won't scar. It would, it would heal perfectly and hair oh, would what? and all that sort of thing. So they're looking at that too in other labs, which That's is, yeah. so interesting. Yeah, this mouse is weird. So it's like, it's not that it doesn't heal. It does heal. It just doesn't yeah. scar. It just wow. doesn't scar, which okay. is like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, anybody that's that's had surgery or something like that will have a, a scar and notice that the, the sort of skin looks mm. a little bit different and it's, mm. there's no hair follicles that grow on that scar. And, yeah. Uh, if that was in the spiny mice, it just, you would never know. Gosh, that, that's literally a superpower is what that, that is. is. That is literally like some superhero level yeah. shit and I am yeah, so here for it. another pretty cool one. Mm-hmm. And again, that theory behind that, still trying to figure that out, but it's probably or most likely like a predatory sort of um, response. If you think of like, you know, like a gecko would drop its tail or something like that mm-hmm. and then take off and yep. go over there and regrow its tail. The spiny would, you know, have its skin, you know, torn by the fox or whatever mm-hmm. is trying to eat it and then it would go hurry away and hide and then it would regrow its skin and it would just so, heal well just heal right like yeah it's <laughs> again amazingly weird gosh the animal kingdom is just so wild i get so caught up in yeah. humans sometimes because like honestly and humans are pretty cool like and the stuff that we can do and the stuff that like our brains can do and our bodies can do like it's it's some cool shit but then you know you just look outside to some of the other species that coexist mm. on this planet with us. And it's just like exactly far out. Like that's, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There's some pretty cool things out there. <laughs> anyway, coming back to, I guess <laughs> the reproductive side, which like, I, reproductive side, yes. I don't know if I would call having a menstrual, so like menstrual cycle a superpower, but maybe it is, I guess it is. It is. In a, well, I mean, it leads to reproduction itself and the fact that we can actually reproduce like that's, that is actually kind of a superpower. Like we could just grow yeah. another person inside yep. of us like no okay that 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 is a superpower i will um, <laughs> yeah, get enthused about the concept of that um that is pretty wild well i suppose the other side of of things is like this the assisted reproduction um sort of side of my phd mm. which was you know looking at the ivf and 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 stuff like that so yeah um, yeah 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 know, 
how I'll ask you I'll ask you how how sort of um common or prevalent do you think infertility is you know how many couples you know one mm. in 10 or one in 20 I genuinely I genuinely don't know like I so and the fact that I genuinely don't know uh <laughs> I don't know okay let's I feel like because you're asking me the question that it's going to be higher than I expect, like this is what my brain is doing. It's like, all right, well, because I'm being asked, then I would say (laughs) it's higher than I expect. But um, like, I feel like, mm, let's say one in 20, that still feels too high, actually. Mm. But So it's actually one in five. No. One in five couples. Oh, wow. Okay. Sort of either subfertility or infertility. So that might just mean it takes them a bit longer to get pregnant or they really can't get pregnant at all naturally. You know? Yeah. So it's like on that spectrum. Shit, that is actually um, significantly higher than I um, thought. Uh, yeah, it's pretty scary to think. Mm. Um, so that's why, you know, things like IVF are like taken off because there's so many mm. people now sort of coming forward with these fertility issues. And it's, mm. it's uh, so the first IVF baby was born in 1979. And yep. since then, we've had six million babies. Holy shit! <laughs> so yeah, so it's 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 a big field, and it's um and it's still growing, right? We're always science is always going to you know grow and learn and improve. Techniques yeah, and all yeah, that. yeah, so yeah. We're just we're only going to get more and more babies, you know. Yeah, and, which yeah, is really so exciting like a of, for a lot of people that you know previously because like 1979, that's really not that long ago. It's is, not, you know. Yeah. Um. So that's it's actually amazing that we've come such a long way in that department in yeah such a short period of time. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. That's what science can do, right? Mm, <laughs> mm, mm. Yeah, and that's all not you know that's that's owing you know a lot to mice and stuff like that too. Mm, you know, because mm-hmm. otherwise, if we didn't know how to, you can't just sort of jump straight into a human experiment. No, so unfortunately not. Yeah, um, unfortunately Only not. we could. You know, that would be a lot easier, but uh, it would, it would, but no. Um, Lots of respect to all the animals that have <laughs> given their, yeah, their exactly. time and their lives to research, but it truly we have learned some incredible, incredible things. So was yeah. IVF developed in? Um, well, obviously developed in animals. Or yeah, yeah. So a lot, a lot of that sort of early, early work was. I mean, there's always going to be mice. Yeah. Um, but also rabbits. Rabbits played yeah. a big role. Yeah. Um, early on, I think the, the very first um, sort of assisted reproductive technique was um, formed about 120 something years ago, and that was mm-hmm. um, a researcher transferred embryos from one female rabbit into another one. So that mm-hmm. other rabbit was like pseudo pregnant, so it was mm-hmm. induced to be pregnant, yeah, um, without having been mated, um, and then they the researcher transferred the embryo in there and then that um I can't remember if that actually went to term but mm-hmm. I feel like it did so that was the very first sort of technique like surrogate mother or something like that yeah wow so we've been doing it for a long time it's yeah. just we just haven't been doing it very well for a long time yeah okay um but then we've we've finally kind of I don't know, cracked something yeah. along the way that's just accelerated yeah. it hugely pretty much yeah once once you sort of figure out some of those fundamentals like you know how much what what salts you know an egg needs to yeah okay sugars it needs and things like that so yeah once you get those down it's um yeah and then we're solving all the sort of um harder to solve problems now you know Mm -hmm. all the very rare issues and things like that but Mm -hmm. again but the fundamentals of like can you keep a cell alive yeah and if you even look at like the, the sort of cattle industry, you know, um, cows and goats and sheep and pigs and how those industries have like skyrocketed, you know, everybody eats meat nowadays and um, the demand for it has, has um, increased over time mm. anyway. So we need, you know, more efficient breeding mm. of cattle. So that's how, you know, IVF and that sort of thing came into the cattle world. And right. So again, you know, a lot of it's not really done in humans until it's perfected in other species. But mm-hmm. yeah, thank God for them. So we're using it for like good as well as evil. Like not not to call out, you know, cattle farming as evil. Not everyone eats meat. I don't eat meat, and I'm going to yeah. get up here on my moral high horse, right? No, I don't care if you know. I'm not judging <laughs> everyone that does. But no, like I, what I'm thinking is that like 
surely there are like there are good ways that we can be using this technology in animals as well like with conservation maybe like is that a thing that's being utilized absolutely yeah it's um sort of a lesser lesser used technique because it's very hard and very expensive and, yeah um you know what we um sort of like I, I've been saying, you know, the, the best species to go for to learn about humans would be either humans or yeah. you know, chimps or gorillas or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very hard to sort of get those model animals for a lot of endangered mm. species. You know, if you look at a, a, a tiger or something, you know, you can look at like the domestic cat. They're very, very similar. Mm. So you can learn a lot. But then once you sort of go to do that work in the tiger and it doesn't really work you've got yeah. very limited amount of wriggle room you know there's only so many tigers in the world that you can yeah spend. that that makes yep that's true um so you know people want to do it it's just um it's a slow it's a slow progress yeah and, um it's 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 been done quite a bit um in coral weirdly okay if um yeah this is sort of a new and emerging technology i guess it's all all those sort of techniques, IVF and whatnot, but mm-hmm. doing in, in coral, which, yeah, kind of confused me at first too when I heard about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Why why we, coral? So we I think everybody has sort of aware of the effects of climate change and the, um, reefs, are, the yep. reefs are dying and yep. so the um, coral aren't coming back or they're being bleached and things like that. So yeah. there's a, uh, I think there's a couple of labs around the world, one being um, in Hawaii, the Smithsonian, and then there's some work being done in James Cook, I think, mm-hmm. in um, northern Queensland, and they they go out in those big spawning events mm. um, and just collect all the polyps of yeah. coral, sort of bring them back and back to the lab, and they'll either grow coral like in the lab and then go transplant mm-hmm. it back and form a new reef or repair that reef, yeah, or they can actually freeze those those polyps and then you know do something a bit later on and preserve them for when the time's better yeah if wow if you just if all the coral's dying and then you make new ones and then put it back to where the coral's dying you really haven't solved it no you're just kind of so, it's just gonna die again like it's just gonna die again and so aid solution yeah something you never really would have thought of you know freezing coral and then mm. pouring it out and mm. it back. so these techniques are being employed it's just um yeah it's a slow slow race mm. <laughs> And even um, there's seeds as well, like plants. So we use it for okay. um, freezing a lot of plants and seeds. So I think the botanics in Melbourne and Sydney uh-huh. have like a seed bank. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I'm thinking of like that, that sort of underground food bank or whatever it is in Norway somewhere where it's got all these seeds and plants and animal tissue, something frozen, and, you know, it's oh. like a disaster vault. If everything goes extinct, we'll go to this vault and bring everything back. I didn't know um, that was a thing, but I love like the Noah's Ark of, but like, it's the Noah's Ark, yeah. I mean, and that's, that's the goal, right? Cause everything's slowly sort of unfortunately going extinct. So yeah. if we can freeze and preserve what we can now, mm. at least maybe later down the line, we can tinker. Reintroduce it, it. Yeah. So I think they've got like in Sydney, like over four or 5,000 different plants. Wow. Frozen. Um, I had no idea that was a thing, but like, it makes sense. That's really. Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's like, you know, this is not um to replace all the work that we're doing in the field, you know, all the mm. incredible ecology research that's coming out. Um, this is very much disaster, you know, mm. if we can't repair it, it's okay. When we're shit well and truly hits the fan. Um, yeah, then you've got, got your the, emergency got supply. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's it's cool stuff. It's just very hard and it's very expensive as well. So Yeah, of course. As with everything in science the root of all evil right <laughs> it comes down to money always everything every time <laughs> uh, but you know because ivf in humans is quite an expensive oh yeah yeah thing it can, isn't it, it? Can, yeah i don't I, how much thousands. does it yeah yeah it's a few thousand and then it, 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 it doesn't always you. work either yeah and that's that's there's the problem right you know you spend all this money and then you can only um you're hedging your bets on, you know, quite a low percentage still. Like we're, we're pretty good at getting to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I think now the main problem is um, sort of, you know, we can grow embryos real well. We can culture them to the perfect point where they're ready to implant. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once we transfer them back, 
you know, that's sort of like it's it's out of our hands now. Mm. Now it's very much Mother Nature's got to take over here. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's that's a little bit of sort of why I looked at some of the early pregnancy stuff and mm-hmm. and the spiny mice to hopefully sort of provide a little bit more explanation or, you know, something, find something that's limiting Mm. pregnancy in this mouse and you know maybe that's happening in humans that are right, cool let's solve that yeah um so yeah so i think that's sort of where the research is moving now to sort of early pregnancy and yeah how to you know bring the baby to term once it's in there once it's, once it's there yeah, yeah. Gotta look after it while it's in there because i think it's still only about maybe um 30 percent i think oh that low yeah, so it's not it's still not very high. Yeah, wow. Um, so yeah, I mean there's always room to improve. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's tough but we again science is getting there. We're getting there. Mm. And so you said before that there are like 20 or so different like um methods techniques. Like techniques. Yeah. yeah. Like what like what sort of other ways are we I don't know. What are some cool ones that I never would have thought of? Because I don't know much about this stuff at all, and so I don't. I sure, sure. <laughs> well, well, there's um. So IVF is like one. It's a technique, and it's also kind of an umbrella term. So okay. The IVF that um we mean by the technique is that is you sort of put the egg in the dish and you put the sperm inside and in that same dish, mm-hmm. and then let them do their thing. Yeah. And the embryo will form, it'll grow, and then we'll put it, we'll transfer it. Yeah, the same thing that would normally happen in the body, but in a dish. Exactly. So that's like the most, one of the, one of the more, yeah, normal, I guess, or or, um, natural, you know, it's it's hard to use the word natural when everything's happening in a dish. Yeah, but. (laughs) It's as natural as it could get. Yeah, yeah. The least, um, with the least interference, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then there is a term called ICSI, so that's intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Mm-hmm. So that is, um, so we do IVF basically if there's no reason um, for us to go to another technique, we'll try IVF. First, yeah. that doesn't work, then we'll look to something like ICSI. So ICSI is when we really only use it when um, there's male factor infertility. So mainly mm-hmm. that's, you know, the, the sperm, there one, there isn't many. Yeah. Or two, there are uh, sort of all odds, too, um, odd, too many odds and shapes and sizes that it's not really um, func- a functional sort of um, mm-hmm. sperm count. And some also just, you know, they just can't swim either well or they're just immotile. Yeah. Know? So... Um, in those cases, IVF is just not going to work because they're just not going to even get to the egg. And if they do, they're probably not going to get inside the egg. Yeah, yeah. So ICSI is when we actually do that ourselves. So you would you would have the egg in a, in, a, in a little drop in the dish and then you would sort of suck up one sperm with a pipette mm-hmm. and then you would actually inject that. Oh, like straight in. Yeah. Okay, so it doesn't so, have to get through the... Because the egg has like a... A barrier thing around it, doesn't it? Yeah, like a it's got a shell. Capsule it's got thing. A shell, just like a chicken egg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if it can't sort of either bind to that shell mm-hmm. um, that, or, or even go through that shell, uh, then nothing's going to happen and mm. the egg will just eventually die. Um, and then in some cases as well, you could have the opposite effect if you get too many sperm go in. Okay. So, yeah. So that's called polyspermy. And <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Some, some, some Logical fine. naming. We like Logical it. Name. We love Logical to see it. Polysperm, many sperm. Um, and that that embryo that would grow, if it does grow at all, um, wouldn't actually grow into um, a baby. So it's it's mm. got too much too much DNA. Yeah. So it's um, not viable really. Yeah. So if that's another thing that keeps happening, then we'll need to do ICSI as well. So that might be a problem with the egg not selecting or, or I shouldn't say selecting or it's as soon as one sperm goes in that mm-hmm. shell should harden yeah okay prevents any other sperm going in so so the shell's not hardening fast enough maybe or bingo yeah so that's when we'd have to go in again and um and inject it straight in yeah and then there'll be another one uh sort of similar to that it actually came out first one called Susie <laughs> Um, <laughs> who names these <laughs> I know right I know um, so that's sub sub zonal 
um, sperm injection. Uh-huh. So, so the zona is that shell. Yeah. So you've got the egg inside and then like that shell just on the outside and there's a tiny little space between the shell and the actual okay. egg itself, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and you would inject a sperm into that. Okay. For that tiny little space. And then the sperm would go in itself after that. What's so, the advantage of going for that little space instead of like shooting it straight in? Yeah. So the the egg actually has like a really thin membrane around it as well. So it's got the shell, mm-hmm. um, the main sort of protector, and then you've got the a really thin membrane over the top as well. So yeah. um, that needle for ICSI would have to go through the shell and then through the membrane as mm-hmm. well. Um, and sometimes that membrane can break. It's yeah, very okay. And very thin. So, so you don't want to die. If you don't go through it, then you don't damage the membrane. Yeah, that's that's the theory. So it is a very invasive mm-hmm. um, sort of technique, but it's, you know, the only option for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so Susie actually came first. Okay, so yeah. They, so they, you know, injected just under that shell and then mm-hmm. the sperm went in itself and did its thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think this was another one of those accidental discoveries. Somebody accidentally went too far and went into the, through the membrane. Right. And then we're like, yeah. oh, this but, works. Oh, that works. Oh, let's just do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Why have we been? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah. So, and. Um, oh, I love science. Some of those. Some of those techniques work really well in some species and they also don't work very well in, in different species. So yeah. it actually works pretty good in um, humans, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's um, very it's a lot harder to do in mice. So that membrane that I spoke about, how it could break and mm-hmm. might not repair itself, um, human eggs are really good at repairing it. So once that mm. needle's gone in and, and sort of put the egg in and then it's come out again, that membrane quite quickly and, and heals heals pretty well. Whereas in rodents, it doesn't it um, it either doesn't heal very well or not quick enough. Yeah. Okay. So um, if you do want to do ICSI in mice, you've got to be pretty damn good at it. Yeah. Um, or you know, there's even more techniques coming out where um, that needle that goes in is actually. Um, um, now under sort of like an electric control. So it's like you'd push a button and then it would go in itself. So it's not manually. Pushed yeah. In. Right. So you get rid of the so human prevent, error. You know, your hands a little bit wobbly or something like I that. I mean, mice are also just so small, like the fine motor control. Like I, I swear that I didn't realize when I started, you know, signed up to be a scientist, the amount of fine motor control that would be required of me to like, you know, um, yeah. No, I think yes, that's... <laughs> I uh, totally know what you mean. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, too. <laughs> that's why like, moving it, moving a little egg and sperm around in different dishes and drops and stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I am a, I'm a shaky hand person. Mm, so yep, same. Yep. I am not cut out um, like, <laughs> for, that for mice. It's either not drink coffee before doing something that you know is going to require a lot of fine motor control. But then it's that trade-off of like, I also need to be able to concentrate. Exactly. I am focused, but my hands are just not. (laughs) (laughs) My hands are not focused. Yeah. And then um, after that as well, so, you know, you've got the embryo made now, however you did it. Mm. Um, And now also a lot of, um, I suppose, a lot of the reasons why older women um, are less fertile is often the quality of their eggs. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, you can often get um, either issues with the DNA being um, not replicated correctly Mm -hmm. or you could get um, um, genetic disorders that will sort of not let that embryo implant. So a lot of things like trisomy 21, for example, which is Mm, Down syndrome, syndrome. um, a lot of those embryos will not implant. Yeah. So... um, that happens quite frequently in, in, in older women because their eggs have, um, they're not as good. So mm-hmm. they can't repair some of those issues that happened with the DNA replicating. Um, but we can also check the embryos for that now. Mm-hmm. So, oh, that's cool. If, yeah. So, again, this one is kind of an invasive one. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at sort of non invasive procedures of, as well, of course. If we don't have to touch the embryo, then we won't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, what you can do is you can take one of the cells outside of the outs outside of the embryo mm-hmm. and then run its DNA and then check mm-hmm. 
check what it's got. If has it got the right number of chromosomes? Yeah. If it doesn't, then it's likely that it's going to be, it's not going to apply. So mm. maybe you could keep that one on the back burner and go mm. have a look at some of the other embryos you've got, if you've got other ones, you know. Are you concerned um, about the potential misuse of such technology <laughs> in the future? Yes, I figured this was going to design a baby's debate and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, it's a very, very difficult question. Yeah, though. yeah, it is. It's, and it is, you know, such a... Because the uh, ethical yeah. dilemma of, of, you know, yeah, weighing up what you think someone's quality of life will be with whatever yeah. conditions you discover that they may have yeah. Um, yeah. and making the call as to whether that is worthwhile or not when you exactly. don't necessarily have that lived experience to qualify you Correct. to make that call. Like, how do you do that? Like, how... <laughs> Yeah, and that, that is, uh, and therein lies the problem. Yeah, it's the very, very hard to sort of say yes or no in those situations because it's ultimately up to the parents. So, yeah. you know, we've, yeah. we, can tell, we, we can tell them, you know, you've got one embryo, um, but it's uh, got Down syndrome, for example. So mm. one, it might not implant, and if it does, your child will absolutely have Down syndrome. Mm. Uh, and that is up to you, you know, we can try again and go through IVF and all that stuff again, or mm -hmm. we can go ahead with the transfer, mm -hmm. you know, go for it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, you can sort of caution people about the risks and stuff like that because mm -hmm. it might be a uh, more risky pregnancy as well and mm -hmm. a couple of other things. But, um, yeah, the laws are sort of playing a bit of catch-up mm. um, with, with um, the science, with this, this field, I guess, yeah. Mm. Um, and like for, um, yeah, so in, in, in Italy, for example, they've got, I think it came into law about early early 2000s is that once you've made mm -hmm. um, the embryos, so let's say you've got 10 embryos, um, mm -hmm. you can only transfer one back to the, to the, to the mother or two in some circumstances, um, mm -hmm. and the other ones can't be used for anything. So, right. So what you know, they would either be sort of discarded mm -hmm. or if allowed, they would be used for research. And, and so you, you can know. get embryonic stem cells from them still, can't you? Yeah. So that's, you know, one route that people might use it uh, down the research side of things. And they might um, take those, yeah, take those cells out, try and grow them and then look at what, if they're growing normally, if we're mm -hmm. having, you know, sugars and salts and da, 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 all these things. Yeah. Um, but then, that became an ethical sort of debate in itself because now we've got all these embryos and mm. a lot of them can't be used. So, so what they did instead was they would fertilize a couple of them, maybe, you know, two or three or something, mm -hmm. and then they would actually freeze the rest of the eggs. So you can freeze the eggs, but you can't freeze the embryos. Right. Okay. So that's the law. So Gotcha. So Italy became the best in the world at freezing eggs because that's yeah, all they could do. Right. You know? Okay. Um, that was like one, you know, a safeguard and two, it mm. was the only thing that they could do with the eggs other than IVF. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. The laws, you know, we're, we're, we're bound by the laws, but some are good, some are bad. But sometimes <laughs> it leads to, you know, positive things like learning how to exactly, freeze eggs. Yeah. Well, I guess. And <laughs> in Australia, Australia is not bad. Um, mm -hmm. but again, we're still playing catch up. Like um, science develops very quickly compared to politics. Policy, <laughs> yeah. Policy is often so far behind. And that's why science communication is important. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Health promo within that, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, and yeah. There's, there's like a, a sort of growing field as well. Um, um, one of my fellow PhD students actually did her whole PhD on this was about um, access to egg freezing. So yeah, depending right. where you are in the world or even within the country or even between clinics yeah, um, can differ on whether or not you'll get a rebate for egg freezing or not. Right, okay. Yeah, because there's somewhat of a, <clears throat> I suppose it's an unclear distinction between one um, medical egg freezing mm -hmm. and uh, and social egg freezing so one you can get a rebate one you can't okay so is um, that if like you have a medical what's... condition that prevents you or that may impact your ability to get pregnant in the future versus if you just yeah are exactly. doing it just in case like you need yeah a... you, you, yeah yeah you right. know, you're, you 
don't have a partner at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't really get pregnant if you don't have a partner and you don't want to, you know, get a sperm donor and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that in the policy's mind is like a social reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, medical reasons, you know, if you're going through chemotherapy or yeah. something like that, yeah. then you'll get a rebate. But, um, you know, is uh, sort of growing older, the natural aging and natural decline in your fertility mm. as a woman, is that not a medical reason, you know, something like that? You would you would think. You would uh, think, but, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a need for a lot of clarity around that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, a lot of companies are even um, providing it like as a, almost like as an incentive mm. um, for people to sort of come and work for you, like Facebook and Google, um, mm. they can, they'll chip in like um, X amount towards egg freezing. If that's what you want to do, that's a benefit you can access. I mean, I like it, but I don't. Like, you know. It's a very iffy, very iffy field. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things that's like, if we had better policy in place in the first place, we wouldn't need big companies like that to offer that as a perk. Yes, um, exactly. But, yeah, we you wouldn't know. need it to, we wouldn't need to incentivize it to come and work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it should just be like a thing that you have the right to have access to. But, you know. Um, Again, the laws are catching up. Right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That, that's what, that's where the uh, sort of um, bump in the road is. It's always the laws and the yeah. policies coming through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm not, you know, I'm not an ethicist. So that's, <laughs> that's um, definitely um, a field that is super interesting, not my expertise. Yeah. It yeah. Is incredibly complex. Oh, definitely. In its own right. You know, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, we'll stick to just the, uh, the discussion of the science. Uh, discussion, yeah. <laughs> because the science is cool and the science is interesting. Um, speaking of, though, we are, pretty much out of time and we have the listener question to shuffle on to soon but before we do I will give you one last you know is there anything else that you haven't had the chance to chat about that you were maybe hoping to or that you think would be cool or I don't know anything else that you wanted to chuck out there before we shuffle on to our listener question um if any politicians are listening I suppose you know (laughs) hurry up and get the ball rolling you know science is ready to evolve and we're (laughs) We're, we're looking to uh, grow and mm. we're trying to help, you know. Um, so science communication, you said it, is so crucial, mm. you know. Not every scientist is good at actually communicating their science. And that's okay, but... And that is okay. It's um, important that we, we have need, people that do, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah we, need a, we need a lot more people in the public eye and the public space that do communicate effectively mm. and reliably, so... yeah. Um, yeah, fake news is real and we need, uh, <laughs> we need real science communicators. Out yes. So it's, it's good to see that there's another one of us. Which I was going to say, just a little pat on the back to each of us for, yeah. <laughs> we're trying, we're trying. We're trying. And that's why we're here and that's why we're talking about this and that's why that's I make this show, you know. And Exactly. Uh, we get it. Yep. Yep. Amazing. All right. Well, Time to move on to our listener question. So if you haven't listened to the show before, every episode, almost every episode, we tackle a listener question that has been sent in by one of our lovely listeners um, to our email address, curiosityrat at gmail.com. So if you have a listener question, you listener person listening to this that you're like, I can't be bothered Googling that. I'd much rather email Kate. Uh, you can do that. CuriosityRat at gmail.com. So today's listener question comes from Elisa and it says, why do we yawn? Why do we yawn when we see other people yawn? Why am I yawning right now as I write this? And now I, I swear I did not yawn on purpose then, but I yawned because that's such a, that is, that is so a thing. Um, the contagious contagiousness is that a word mm. is a word now um of yawning and the fact that even just like reading the word or listening to the word or you guys might have just yawned listening to me yawn um is really crazy and it's another one of these really fun listener questions where the very short and simple answer is like we still don't really know uh <laughs> science hasn't quite you know, there's a bit of debate. There's a bit of, we thought we knew. And then it turned out what we thought we knew was incorrect. And, you know, so there's a few questions in there. It's like the, why do we yawn in the first place? And then also the contagious yawning, like, why do we yawn when we see others yawn? 
Um, so to begin with, the really fun little medical term for yawning, because I know you all want to know it, is um, oscitation. Don't know why. Yep. Um, and if you if you yawn and like stretch your whole body at the same time and do one of those big like good morning stretches, uh, that's called pendiculation. Just if you were wondering, which of course you were. Um, and like the cool thing about yawning is that almost all vertebrates yawn, but all for like different reasons. So penguins yawn as part of like a mating ritual. Uh, snakes can yawn to like realign their jaw after a really big meal. Uh, guinea pigs yawn to like display anger slash like intimidate because it like shows their teeth as they like open their mouth and stretch their jaws and whatever. Um, so, you know, trying to figure out why humans yawn is one of those things where it's like, it's hard to know because it'll, it's most likely a very species specific thing. Um, and we start doing it when we're a fetus. Like we start yawning in the second trimester. Um, and we really don't know why babies, like, or sorry, why fetuses, fetuses, fetus. What's the plural of fetus? Fetuses? Yeah, it sounds right. It sounds right. I'll, I'll trust, yeah. I'll trust the reproductive biologist. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we don't know why they yawn um, like at all. It doesn't really make a lot of sense yet. But sort of traditionally, or this is what I thought until I started researching this, and I was alarmed when I started researching this that I was so outdated. Like, once again, this is why we need science communicators. I was so outdated in my understanding of yawning. Like, I don't know um, whether this is what you thought as well, Jared, but like, I always thought that it was, I don't know, someone told me once that yawning was to get a lot of oxygen in. Like it makes sense, right? It's that people yawn when they need more oxygen to draw, you know, you've got too much CO2 or whatever. It's your brain's way of taking a deep breath and getting more oxygen. Like that's, that's big old fake news. And that has been big old fake news for a very long time. Like, a study that came out in 1987 essentially tested this, um, tested that, and this is, I love this. I'm going to quote this exact like sentence from the paper that it, um, they tested the commonly cited, but previously untested hypothesis that yawning is facilitated by higher than normal levels of CO2 or lower than normal levels of O2 in the blood. So like up until 1987, people were saying, yeah, this is the reason we yawn, but no one had actually tested it. Like what? And then they tested it. So this study came out and they, they got people breathing 100% oxygen gas, um, gases with higher than normal levels of like carbon dioxide and then just regular compressed air as a control. And they found that neither the pure oxygen nor the gases with high CO2 like had any effect on yawning. So that kind of pretty much throws that whole theory in the bin. Um, And then around the same time, another study came out showing that like um, when people are exercising, so when people actually do need more oxygen, arguably because they're exercising and their muscles are using more, um, like they don't yawn more. So it's like, you know, there's, there's pretty much no proof that, oxygen levels or your brain craving oxygen or anything has anything to do with it. Um, and we've kind of known this for a while, but for some reason that's still what I thought was the case until I began researching this. So big yikes. Um, but the kind of leading theory at the moment, um, is actually really interesting. And it's that yawning has, has developed as a way to like cool down your brain, essentially like physiologically, decreasing the temperature of your brain like a computer like the the fan in a computer right because once again like a computer your brain works like best at a very specific temperature and you know thermoregulation is really important our body has a lot of ways and a lot of mechanisms built in to try do this um and to avoid overheating apparently like there there is some evidence that yawning has developed as a way to do this because your Okay, when you yawn, a couple of things happen, right? You number one, you stretch your jaw and like increase the rate of blood flow to your skull as you activate all those muscles and contort your face and do do the yawny thing. Then you also inhale and send a big gulp of like cooler, generally cooler the air the temperature of the air outside is going to be cooler than inside your body normally. And you're going to send a big gulp of this cooler air into your sort of upper nasal oral cavities which they then have these like mucous membranes that have like shit tons of blood vessels 
um, that project directly like to the forebrain. So essentially you're bringing this cool, refreshing air into your sinuses to change the temperature of the blood that's then like heading straight up to the brain, cooling that down and then cooling down the brain, which can then help you be like more alert and like think more effectively and whatever. And there's like, there's like a fair bit of evidence to support that this is a thing. Number one, in mice, once again, all good researchers started in mice. Um, they measured that, like, because mice yawn as well. They do tiny little yawns, and it's flipping adorable. Um, but they they do have a dip in brain temperature, like after yawning. Um, also, parakeets yawn. Uh, but they only yawn within a very specific range of temperatures. So if it's too cold outside, then the yawning is going to cool the brain too much. Or if it's too hot, then the yawning will warm it up. So there's this optimal temperature range that parakeets yawn in. Um, That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. If you yawn, yawn, yawn less in like a hot mm. country or a hot day than you would on a cold day? Well, okay. What they've done they, is not necessarily looked at hot days versus cold days, but in humans – they found that people will yawn less when they have an ice pack on their head. Boom. Um, so this study, <laughs> there was a study that came out in 2019 that was like saying, you know, this brain cooling hypothesis is still pretty controversial despite strong empirical evidence. So we've gone and we've decided to like really, really test it again. Um, and they found like, so what they did is they got participants to hold either like a warm pack, which is about 46 degrees Celsius a room temperature pack, 22 degrees, or a cold pack um, at 4 degrees Celsius um, to their neck just above their carotid artery for like five minutes. And then they watched a contagious, what they called a contagious yawning stimulus. So essentially videos of other people yawning, which then made other people yawn. Still, we'll get to that contagious bit in a sec. And then what they did is they used thermal imaging essentially to see if um, like this produced any changes in temperature because something called the, the supramedial orbital area, so it's essentially like your orbital area is like where your eye sits, um, where you can like, they're calling it, what did they call it? The tunnel, the brain temperature tunnel. It's essentially, it's a part, a region in your skull that is a non-invasive measure of brain temperature. So you can look with like a thermal imaging camera and you can tell how hot the brain is by looking at this particular part of your face. Um and they found that, as predicted by past research, both the urge to yawn and the overall yawn frequency significantly diminished in the group holding the cold pack to their necks. Um, and also, there was a threefold difference in the mean number of yawns um, between the warming and the cooling conditions, the people holding the warm pack versus the cold pack, um, and also using the thermal imaging that the brain temperature decreased when people held the cool pack to the carotid artery. So all of this is like pretty strong evidence that at least a reason why we yawn and contagiously yawn as well. Like it's linked with this contagious yawning. That's not a separate thing because that's what they used as the stimulus was to make people yawn. And like, once again, we don't really know why it's contagious. Like a lot of people, a lot of scientists like to argue that it's linked to empathy. So empathy being, you know, the ability to sort of not only recognize but share the emotion that someone else is feeling. Um, and so they're like, it's to do with emotional connection. And because there was some studies that found that like your score on an empathy questionnaire thing correlated with how much you contagiously yawned. Um, then there was also a study that found people with autism disorder, so who often have issues with these social cues or empathy, um, they contagiously, contagiously yawned less. Um, but then there was also some debate around that because another study um, using people with autism found that when the people with autism were told to like look at the beard or count the number of glasses or something or essentially were given cues to make sure they were actually looking at the face of the people yawning then they yawned just as much so it maybe isn't to do with empathy it's just to do with the fact that uh autistic people generally aren't looking at the face as much so it's the the empathy one's got a bit of a question mark over it um but a cool one was that yawning potentially increases like focus which is kind of the opposite of what you think because you kind of think oh when you're bored you yawn um but because it, you know, brings your brain back to that sort of optimal temperature, like it, it can sort of 
make you focus better. And there's reports of like elite athletes right before doing something, you know, a very competitive sport thing, like they'll yawn and it'll help them focus. Um, and so also potentially this, it, it can act as like a social signal contagiously that like, say, you know, you're keeping, you're the one that's meant to be keeping watch and you yawn. It's, you've just alerted everyone around you that like, okay, you're probably going to be useless at keeping watch tonight. We all need to be more alert to counteract the fact that you are tired because you've just yawned. And so it's like, you know, advantageous in the sense that it sends this reminder to the rest of the herd to keep themselves like vigilant. It's called the group vigilance hypothesis. It's like that, yeah, it might make you more alert if you see someone who's with you yawn and they tell cool study that came out January this year 2021 actually tested this and found something really interesting so what they did is that um they got 38 participants showed them a series of photos and asked them to find either one frog amongst a group of snakes or one snake amongst a group of frogs um because like humans are really good at spotting snakes right because you know they're danger noodles and it's ev- <laughs> evolutionarily good for us to be able to spot them really quickly. Um, and so in this study, they tracked how quickly participants could spot the snake in amongst the frog or the frog amongst the snakes. Unsurprisingly, they spotted the snakes faster than the frogs. Interestingly, if the participants were shown videos of people yawning before the test, they were quicker at spotting the snakes and more distracted by the snake photos when trying to find frogs. So yawning... Yeah, yeah. So yawning or seeing someone else yawn, even whether you yawn yourself or not, it like just watching someone else yawn was enough to have this effect. So yawning or watching someone else yawn might kick our brain into alert mode. And as yawning like spreads through the group, it might make everyone like, oh, we need to pick up the slack and spot potential danger and whatever. Uh, so potentially, you know, the, the yeah, the longer the short of it is, there's a lot of question marks there. We don't really know, but potentially it sounds like that could be part of it. It's all, we don't know. It's a big old, we don't, because for a while scientists were like, were like and, and medical researchers were like, you know, yawning is kind of a cool thing. Like it's a thing that happens, but it doesn't really have much. One paper I read, I can't remember the exact sentence, but it was like, it doesn't have any like clinical significance. So it went pretty much ignored for a long time. People were like, it's not doing any harm or any good. So we're just going to not care. And now that we're trying to figure it out, we're like, oh, everything we thought we knew was wrong. Um, oh, and another cool thing that I forgot to mention was that like supporting this sort of empathy or contagious yawning, they found that you contagiously yawn most with your biological family, then followed by your friends, followed by acquaintances, followed by finally strangers. So the closer you are, like both genetically and then also like socially to the people that you see yawn, the more likely you are to contagiously yawn from seeing them. So is it to do with emotional connection? Is it to do with that group vigilance, but you only care if it's your family, you don't care if a stranger gets eaten by something if they're tired? Like, I don't know. There's a whole lot of like, who knows? But That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and also dogs yawn when their owners yawn. And well, they're, and they're more likely to contagiously yawn to their owner than to a stranger. So dogs, yeah, it depends on the emotional level of connection for dogs as well, which I think is adorable. Um, and I definitely didn't spend a lot of last night yawning in front of my dog trying to make him yawn. And he didn't. And I'm trying not to take it personally. But well, that's exactly what I'll be doing this afternoon. So. Yeah, I highly recommend it as a use of your time. Uh <laughs> But yes, anyway, that pretty much answers the question as best as I can. So I hope that that answers your question, uh, Alisa, sufficiently. Um, And thank you again, Jared, for coming on and joining me today and talking about all of the cool science that you've been involved in. And um, it was really, I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Yeah, great. No, it's it's good fun. I love talking science and animals. So Mm, yeah, fantastic. Um, and if all the people listening today want to find more of you, which of course they will because you were brilliant, uh, where can they do that? How can they do that? So find me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just Jared underscore McKenna, but I can give you my full name. Yeah, I will. I'll chuck, if you scroll down to the description, I'll chuck the link in the description or the handle, the Twitter handle in the description so you guys can go 
find that. Uh, anything else or just Twitter's the place to tw- place that's, to find you? That's, that's my go-to. Yep. So, yeah, cool. Twitter will be the one. No stress. And, you know, if you're not already following us on Twitter, you can at Curiosity Rat is our handle. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook, um, all of that good stuff. Also, we now have a Patreon. So if you enjoy what we do, you want to chuck us, you know, the smallest amount of money because you you value it, you can. If you don't want to, that's also totally fine because as, you know, as we always say, the reason we do this is because we want this science to be free and accessible to anyone that wants access to it. So please never feel pressured to give us any money or anything. Just enjoying, you know, listening to us is a gift enough. Um, And with that... I think we're done here. I think we're done with today. So thank you so much, Jared. It was great to have you on board. And we will see you guys next time. Curiosity. Curiosity. Kill the rat. Kill the rat.